Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Today on Addressing Alaskans, what kind of fiscal future do we want for Alaska? Good afternoon, I'm Ammon Swenson. Today's show features speakers discussing their view of what Alaska's fiscal future should be. The speakers include co-chair of the Senate Finance Committee, State Senator Natasha von Imhoff, Anchorage Mayor Ethan Berkowitz, Vice President of Government Relations for Siri, Greg Razzo, Musin Gutabi from the University of Alaska Anchorage's Institute of Economic Research, and finally, Larry Persily, University of Alaska Anchorage Department of Journalism Atwood Chair. This event was organized by Alaska Common Ground and was recorded at 49 State Brewing Company on December 10th. For a full video of the event or to see presenter slides, head to the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. Moderator Thea Agnew-Bemben speaks first. And thank you everyone for being here tonight. So we have a pretty packed uh, panel and series of presentations and then we're hoping for some really good questions from the uh, from all of you tonight. So I'd like to just get started by inviting Senator Natasha von Imhoff onto the stage. So hoping for a really uh, lively discussion tonight. Thank you, Senator, for being here. And I will turn it over to you for the first presentation. So this presentation, uh, it's gonna take about, I'm gonna take my time, about 15 minutes, and then uh, we can have questions afterwards. So I'm gonna be talking about the past events leading up to now, and then where we are today, and then potentially some of our choices moving forward. So this is uh, a slide that ICERS kind of taught me how to make. And what this is, is showing fiscal year 2013 all the way to 2019. The red line is revenue. And you can see how revenue took a free fall from 2013 all the way to 2016. The expenses are represented in the columns. The different colors are the different categories. Green is capital, blue is agency spending, and uh, you can see the gray I have up there is the permanent fund. Now revenue was not being, this revenue that I have up here was not being used to pay the permanent fund, excuse me, it's a permanent fund dividend. It was not being paid until 2019. Now you see how revenue went up really far in 2019? That's when the legislature passed SB 21, which is the, uh, excuse me, SB 26. That is the percent of market value, the structured draw on the permanent fund. Our revenue went up. It almost covered all spending. We had about a $400 million gap in 2019 that we needed to use the CBR. All the other times where the bar graph is above the red line is deficit spending. So how did we pay for that? Using the Constitutional Budget Reserve, our state spending account, this is fiscal year 13 through fiscal year 19. That's the balance of the fund. We took money each year. Right now, there's about $1.8 billion left in it. Governor Dunleavy passed his budget in February 13, 2019. There was reductions all across every agency. It also included a full statutory dividend, about 3,000 per person, and it takes about $1.9 billion to pay for that. We spent the whole session understanding what those budget cuts meant, 
the university, to the ferry, to Medicaid. I headed the Health and Social Services Committee. We had 14 morning meetings to try to determine how to manage those reductions. This is a visual of what Governor Dunleavy's proposed budget looked like on February 13th. The red is the dividend. The blue are all the other agencies. This is a map representing the wide variety of Alaskan views. If you recall, at one point during the summer, a few of us met in Juneau and a few of us went in Wasilla. What this represents is just the hundreds of, or the thousands of miles uh, between the philosophies of not just the legislature, but I would argue all Alaskans. If every single person was in this room wanted to write down on a piece of paper on what you think the uh, government level, the level of government services should be, and or the level of the dividend, we would probably get 150 different answers. And that's not a bad thing. It just takes time to kind of go through the process. But as you can see, we were definitely divided this summer. It took time, but we finally got it around the end of July. I'm not to saying that that's what I want to do every summer, mind you. So this is the budget that we enacted in July. As you can see, we had oil and UGF revenue, and this is UGF, this is undesignated general funds. About 2.3 billion at the top, plus 2.9 billion from the POMV, the structured draw on the permanent fund. So just keep this in mind, we had about 5.2 billion in revenue. And then you can see the different expenses that we had. Uh, health and social services took a big hit. Transportation took a 21% reduction from the previous year. Of course, that, a big chunk of that was the ferry. The university took about a $25 million reduction, and all other agencies was about 7.3% 7 7 reduction total. We were able to pay the capital, $144 million, using the CBR, our savings account. This allowed us to have a $912 million surplus drained the SBR, our last remaining, remaining small savings account, and we were able to use that money to pay for a uh, $1,606 dividend this past October. It was a negotiated amount, but we did take a lot of savings to do that. This is what the legislative enacted budget looks like on the upper left compared to the governor's original draft budget in February. Again, the permanent fund in millions, or actually almost billions, is in red. So what's in store? Fall revenue forecast came out. It looks like there's going to be about a decrease uh, in four, maybe five dollars in oil. It's hard to say. That's probably a decrease of about 200 million or so. It looks like we're going to have a big supplemental. We had an earthquake. There's still some residual costs for that. We had a lot of wildfires. And it looks like Medicaid, we may not be able to get the cost, that we the cost reductions that we originally wanted. So there's about another 200 or so million dollars in additional costs. There is no resolution on the permanent fund dividend. We still have the existing calculation on the books. And then, of course, there's tax talk. We just heard about in February 11th, we're going to hear four options. So I created a pro forma. Don't be nervous. All the columns are roughly the same except for the permanent fund. So I have A, B, C, and D. The revenue are all the same. You have about $5 billion in total revenue. You can see a little bit less than last year. 
All the expenses on all the different options are the same. This is my best guess with my staff of what we think the expenses are going to be. And I pretty much made them um, stagnant at this point. I put about $200 million more in, ex in agencies just to absorb some of these supplementals that I think are going to carry over. What the difference is, is the dividend amount. So you'll see the permanent fund dividend in column A is no PFD. This is just a base case. I'm not promoting this. I'm just basically saying this is what the numbers look like. It gives us a surplus of about $200 million. If we wanted to pay a $1,600 dividend, that costs the state about a billion dollars. It yields a deficit of about $881 million. A 50-50 POMV, basically if we took the POMV, the percent of market value, the structure draw off the permanent fund, and we gave half of it to government and half of it to the dividend, $1.5 billion would be spent on the dividend, and that yields a $1.3 million deficit, excuse me, $1.3 billion deficit. And then moving over to the final column, column D, a $3,000 dividend yields us, it, it costs the state $2 billion to pay and yields about a $1.8 billion deficit. So the choices that we all have are, how much should the dividend be? Should we set the dividend first and then build an entire budget around that? How do we pay for any deficit that we have? Should we tax ourselves when we are paying a dividend? If we generate any new revenue of any type, where should it be spent? And should we cut millions or billions of dollars from the budget in order to pay a dividend. So there's been some discussion about the earnings reserve account. That's the savings account, if you will, portion of the permanent fund. And at the close of June 30th, there was 16 billion in it. Why not take the money from there? So right now, we have an earnings reserve balance that if we just take, we're taking five and a quarter percent this year, but it goes back down to 5% next year. That's the annual structure draw on the permanent fund, meaning we look at the market value of the fund and we take 5% of it. That's how foundations and endowments around the world do it. The Rasmussen Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates Foundation, even um, I think the Nor Norway actually went down to about 4.75. If you just take 5%, this is what the fund balance, or excuse me, that's what the earnings reserve in blue is gonna look like over time. It grows. It can, it can withstand that based on historical models of looking at all these endowments and foundations across the world for decades. The orange, if we pay a full PFD and we take extra draws from the earnings reserve account in order to do that, by 2028, it doesn't look like we have an earnings reserve account at all. So dividends as we know it will cease to exist. So our kids and grandkids probably won't get one. Yeah, the, this one's more important. This is the POMV draw comparison. If we have a structured, disciplined draw, that's the green. The draw should go up. As the fund value goes up, the draw should also go up. If we take additional draws and put too much pressure on the permanent fund and take money out of it above the 5%, that's the yellow line. That represents a full PFD if we pay those every year. The fund cannot absorb that. We're already taking, in my opinion, the maximum amount at 5%. So the takeaways, I think I did this a little faster than 15 minutes, so we'll have lots of room for questions. Based on my three years in the Senate and my 40-something years in Alaska, how I look at it now, we're at a crossroads. 
I think it is imperative that we find some type of middle ground or balance for all spending, not just the permanent fund, not just core government services, but all of it. Once we find a balance, where do we want to be, then we can determine what the deficit is. We can decide, do we like that size of that deficit? How do we fill it? What makes sense to fill that deficit? Now remember, if we paid no PFD, we have no deficit. But I don't think that's realistic. I think the PFD personally is here to stay. It's just a factor, it's just a matter of what's the level of the PFD that we can afford over time. I believe that any solution should include a spending cap. This way, if we do get more revenue, we could apply it to capital, we can pay down debt, we can put it in savings account in case we have another emergency of any type. A, a saving, excuse me, a spending cap will avoid those very difficult time that we had in 13, 14, 15 that we're just kind of now coming out of. I also believe that there is room to continue to put downward pressure on the government. From what I've seen, that there is inefficiencies in government. But how I look at it, just like fat in a piece of meat, it's marbled throughout the entire enterprise. It takes time and focus and energy to thoughtfully go in to each department and observe how it's being run, figure out where there are efficient ways to improve it, maybe through technology, maybe through combining efforts with different, with different agencies, what have you. There is room to do that, and I believe that the administration is trying to do that in some ways. I do know, though, that if you make large cuts, you saw this week that a lot of those are having to be walked back with disability payments, I believe, for seniors. So that's my presentation. Great, great. Thank you, Senator. Do you want to take a seat? And maybe, oh. I'll, maybe I'll sit down here, too. We have a lot of questions, so oh. we can just dive into some of these. Sh should I take a seat? Yeah, go <laughs> ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, so the first one is about fair oil tax reform or the closure of the loophole that exempts most Alaska corporations from Alaska's corporate tax. So here's the question. We, okay, actually there's two facts that this person wants to share. We have an oil production tax that is zero for new fields at current oil prices, according to a 2018 Alaska Department of Revenue document. And the second fact they'd like to share, we have a combined oil production tax and oil royalty system that for the three biggest producers gets Alaska almost a decade of negative revenue for new fields that are found in the NPRA, according to a 2018 Alaska DNR study. We find a similar negative revenue problem for production by the big three in Anwar. So here's the question. We can have a corporate and oil tax that's more fair to Alaskans while still being very fair to business. With no action on these items, isn't Alaska creating a self-imposed fiscal crisis? So maybe a simple, simpler way to state this question is, what is your stance or your opinion on how uh, potentially changing oil taxes could affect the uh, scenarios that you presented today? Well, that's a very large question. There's all sorts of information in there. I will do my best. Um, so the oil taxes were passed, I believe, in 2014. Since then, we have seen uh, what you call, ConocoPhillips is calling a renaissance of the North Slope. So the question remains, did SB 21 
contribute to that. I believe it did. I believe that uh, we're about $60, 60, 60 to 65 right now. That probably contributed to it as well. My understanding is SP21 was set up to weather this, the test of time. So at oil prices, whether they're at 40 or whether they're at 80, that was the sliding scale uh, to be able to provide income to the state at all different prices. I do know that I checked the statute before I came in January of 2021, so in essence a year from now, the oil and gas competitive working group must provide the state a deliverable. And that was put in statute several years ago specifically to study, to take a gut check, if you will, it's my interpretation of this law or of this uh, of our, our current laws for production taxes to see how Alaska is competitive globally. Now, I believe that there's money for this group. They are assembling now. They are going to begin to look at a national and global uh, landscape to see how Alaska is doing. How, are the, how is the law working? Are we competitive? Does it make sense to change it at all? I'd like to wait for that. I think that's a sensible, measured, disciplined approach and also will give us the facts and the data that I believe will drive sensible policy decisions. In regards to NPRA and ANWR, I believe we've got much smarter people in the audience who can answer that, but I believe that it's my understanding that that was not a state negotiated, um, well, that's the royalty. Um, I don't. I don't feel comfortable enough to talk about the ANWR and the NPRA right now in front. I need to. I need to do a little bit more research to be able to speak intelligently on it. Great, thank you for that. So here's a here's a question that's more big picture. What are some of the ways that you think that we could increase revenue for the state? I know that there's a motor fuels tax. I think um, coming down the pike. I know that there was um, an education tax potentially coming down the pike. Um, I just mentioned what my thoughts are about the oil and gas taxes. I feel that it's important to be thoughtful and allow the working group to do its work. Um, what about a sales tax? What about an income tax? I go back to say, if we have, if, if we, we must solve the spending before we can look at new revenue. I don't feel that we can do an income tax right now when we're shooting in the dark about what our expenses are. I don't think we can do a sales tax right now when we have no idea what our dividend is going to be. I've said this publicly. I feel very uncomfortable taking the wages of one person only to turn around and deposit it into the personal checking account of their neighbor. Until we understand what the dividend is going to be, I don't feel comfortable talking about the revenue part. We have to solve the spending and we have to put a spending cap in place that covers everything. Okay, we'll do another one and then we'll bring the other folks up on the stage. Um, how, how would you encourage new business development in Alaska is the question. Um, and I guess I would add a, a kind of a tag onto that question, which is as we encourage new business development, how would you also suggest that we recoup revenue from that new business development into back into the state coffers to pay for state services? So we have... Um, a couple wonderful funds called ADA, Alaska Industrial Economic Export Development, something along that line, ADA. 
And then AEA, that one's a little bit easier, Alaska Energy Authority. Um, also, if you recall, the permanent fund just pledged, I believe, to invest 2 million, excuse me, 200 million in the state of Alaska. There is money here that we can use to attract and uh, attract and invite investment. Funny that you ask, I actually have a list. So there is uh, a movement now to actually harvest timber in the Tongass. I read, I have an article from the Seattle folks saying that steel smelting plants are actually more environmentally harmful than timber, selective logging. And when you can take timber, you can build up about an eight story building and it's this laminated timber. So that's an opportunity. Alternative forms of energy with global warming. Maybe it's time to start talking about dams, hydroelectric and other forms. They take investment. These are, you gotta choose. Do you want a glaciers to melt or a couple fish to die? The fish are dying anyway, actually. But I would argue that if we can put a man on, moon, on the moon, we can figure out something with the dam. These are just ideas. A tram to the Eagle Glacier, data farm on the North Slope, MTA is ready, there's 14 acres, Ada has it. Data farms, companies like Google, Amazon, they need data farms and they want it on US soil. They don't want it in Iceland. They don't want it in Norway. They want US soil with US laws. Amazon Prime Airport Package Distribution Center. As long as you don't put anything fragile, I'm just kidding. But um, that is fantastic. Do you want to know what the numbers are? 22,000 packages a day coming through Anchorage. 450,000 packages a month being sent to 211 zip codes here in just Alaska. It is an entire 767 every single day. I went and looked at it, it's, it's amazing. So where are people spending their dividends? Amazon Prime. Sewer dock expansion, public-private partnership. I went and visited and kicked the tires this summer. You have public money, you have private money. That's exactly what we should be doing. The Alaska port, same type of deal in the visitor center in Talkeetna. It's about a 25 million endeavor. The state can put in 2 million, 10%. You can get private companies to put in the other 22. It's fee-based and it will pay it off in 10 to 15 years. These are the kind of projects that we should be doing. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's program features speakers discussing what they would like to see for Alaska's fiscal future. You just heard Alaska State Senator Natasha Von Imhoff. We'll pick back up with moderator Thea Agnew-Bemben. Great. Thank you very much, Senator. You can take a seat and we'll bring our other panelists up if you'd all like to come up. Um, we have a great group here. We've got Mayor Ethan Berkowitz from the Municipality of Anchorage. We have Greg Rasso, who's a Vice President at Cook Inlet Regional Incorporated. We have Musin Gutabi, who is from the Institute of Social and Economic Research. And we have Larry Persley, who is the Atwood Chair um, at UAA of the Department of Journalism. So we're going to have a uh, give each of our additional panelists uh, some time to present their ideas, and then we'll take some more questions from you and also have questions amongst them. Okay, and I think if you're ready, Mayor Berkowitz, you're first on the list. Okay, I'll hand this to you. You know, it's a little uh, unnerving because I'm looking out across this audience and I am seeing the same people being concerned about the same fiscal problems that we've had for as long as I've been engaged in public life. And I say this as one of the last surviving members of the Fiscal Policy Caucus. They're supposed to get a laugh out of that. 
because we've been striving for a generation to solve this problem. And fundamentally, the issue that's driving it is at peak oil production, we were running 2.2 million barrels a day down the pipe. We had a population of about 500,000. That's 4.4 barrels per day per person. Today, we're running about 500,000 barrels down the pipe. There's 750,000 of us. That's two-thirds of a barrel per, per person. So oil is the horse that we rode in on. It is now just one of the big dogs in the traces. And we have to do things differently than we've been doing. And so when I listen to the discussions about whether it's going to be an income tax or a sales tax, these are the same boring conversations that go nowhere. And they never go anywhere because there's some structural problems with it. With it. We need to change the conversation if we're going to get to a solution. We definitely need to change the, the equation. I mean, we're in a situation now where the oil industry is talking about things like carbon taxes and carbon fees. That is not part of the discussion down in Juneau. Why not? We're in a situation where historically the state and local governments have worked together to provide infrastructure and services to the people of Alaska, but the local governments are not involved. And I'll tell you what a big change has happened. In the mid-80s, approximately 45% of Anchorage's budget was directly covered by the state. This upcoming year, it's 1%. So all these fantastic budget cuts that have been coming down the pike have not been budget cuts so much as budget shifts. And the costs have been borne by local taxpayers. And I think there is a way out of that problem. And yes, we need to look at new revenue. We need to look at revenue. It's great that we're hearing about Amazon. I would like to see more of them. But we're already landing 75, 747s a day in Anchorage. We're moving that much cargo out of this airport. We don't have an internet sales tax in this state. And so the brick and mortar stores that we frequent compete against these outside entities, and they aren't competing on a level playing field. We aren't doing a great job with managing the, the, the state assets that we have. There are state assets, for example, the, the uh, Alaska Housing and Finance Corporation could buy the Student Loan Corporation. And 15 years ago, when Senator Al Adams and another legislator, who I'm not going to mention, um, put that idea forward, that was a $250 million sale. And the budget has not been scoured for those kind of opportunities. And every time those suggestions are made, it lands on deaf, deaf ears. We need to be bold in what we do. I also think that when you, when you view the big cuts that have happened across the state, it is time for us to talk about a municipal dividend. And this 50-50 split between um, what state government gets and what, what the dividend gets, it doesn't include local governments. And one of the problems with the direct permanent fund dividend payout is approximately 20 to 25% is paid to the federal government as federal income tax. That is not an efficient use of that money. Another quarter of the money is garnished. It goes to sometimes meritorious things like uh, child support. Sometimes it goes to pay municipal traffic fines, which we really appreciate in the municipality. But it is not the best use of the money. If we had a payout, where just a 5% payout on a $60 billion uh, permanent fund, split between 45% to government, to the state government, 45% to the permanent fund dividend itself, which is about 
a $2,800 to $2,000 dividend, and 10% to local government. That's $300 million to local government. In the municipality of Anchorage, that's approximately probably $125 million. If the municipality had $125 million of revenue, that could go to property tax relief. That could go to, to do things like assume bond debt reimbursement. That could go to do things to make sure that the roads that are not plowed because the state has cut its road plowing, we could do all those things. So there are options in front of us. But in order for us to be the kind of people we want to be, which is to say independent and self-reliant, then we've got to be a lot more creative than we've been. And we've got to engage a lot more people in the conversation because that hasn't happened. And I say this as a veteran of many, many budget wars in Juneau. We are not as smart as we can be. There are options out there for solving the problem. But as long as the sole view is that we're going to cut the budget, I'm going to quote Wally Hickel. Wally was not exactly a flaming liberal. <laughs> Wally said time and again that if your sole vision is to cut the budget, then Alaska has no hope and has no future. And we need to remember that. Because if you want to have a functional level of government, you need to have the resources to pay for it. And I think that at the end of the day, we are measured as a state by much more than the size of our dividend. We need to remember that moving forward. Thank you, Mayor Berkowitz. So I'm Greg okay, Razzo. Um, I spend a lot of time uh, talking with folks from rural Alaska Many of our shareholders at Cook Inlet Region live in rural Alaska. And some of the observations that I see just in terms of uh, one of my other avocations, uh, being the president of Alaska Legal Services Corporation and supporting that nonprofit as it strives to help the poverty population in Alaska with legal needs, a couple things. First of all, where we are today, at this point after a year in, Many rural hub communities no longer have local staff at public assistance. This means that folks in rural Alaska that try to need to get help through a hotline, um, they try and use a hotline that is very rarely answered. This results in folks inappropriately losing benefits like SNAP and food stamps, public assistance. And this results in greater food insecurity. So food security, that's an important thing for our people who live in two economies, a subsistence economy and a cash economy. That's the economy of rural Alaska. There are many other examples of this uh, centralization and the effects it has on our people. Uh, for instance, local law enforcement, gone. Lack of therapeutic foster homes, they don't exist. Local addiction services, doesn't happen. Things like the failure to provide community-based resources, local caseworkers, law enforcement, behavioral health services, all of these, uh, these efforts to centralize and move things out of rural Alaska to Anchorage, Fairbanks, Juneau, result in a failure in supporting our local communities. And that's something we just can't, we just can't have. We can't live that way in rural Alaska. It's not fair to the poorest people in the state. The state needs to be looking at community-based answers, solutions to 
to uh, drive down this long-term fixed expense that we have in terms of meeting the needs of the poorest people in our state, the people that live in rural Alaska. So that's where we are. We've got um, many changes that have happened and people that are feeling the harshest uh, effects of this living in rural Alaska. Now I know the, the climate change talk here isn't gonna happen for a few months, but let me talk about that for a little bit in terms of the real effects it's having on people in rural Alaska. Newt Gavik, the northernmost community in the United States. It just ended its second warmest October on record. Temperatures uh, at 11.6 degrees Fahrenheit above normal. In Kaktovik on the Beaufort Sea in northeastern Alaska, average October temperature was nine degrees above normal. In Kotzebue, the average monthly temperatures were about 6.6 .6 degrees above normal. October was the 26th consecutive warmer than no normal month uh, for, for Kotzebue. And then at one site, uh, some place you may have heard of, the uh, Tulik Field Station on the North Slope, the soil doesn't freeze until January now, right? So in Alaska, there are dozens of towns that the federal government has identified as being in potential need of relocation due to the damage resulted, resulting from the climate crisis. And this climate crisis is very real. As we uh, even look at today's newspaper, right? Headline news about, about permafrost thawing. What does that do to our economy? What does it do, not just for the next fiscal cycle, but for the immense amount of infrastructure that we've built up on the North Slope. When the permafrost thaws and all that infrastructure starts to subside, our roads go down, it affects our railways, it affects all of our transportation industry, and the state is doing literally nothing about it. I, I don't know if any of you had a chance to uh, watch the uh, Alaska Federation of Natives convention on television as we went through the resolutions this year. I was surprised, I really was. Um, at the end of our resolutions process, we take up the elders and youth resolutions. And this year, probably I think it was the very last resolution we had to consider, was a resolution that came from elders and youth asking for a climate change task force, okay? And, um, and that had a lot of language in it. It had a potential effect on the oil and gas industry uh, as part of the language. And many of our companies, our Alaska native corporations, they, they practice and, and operate in the fields of oil field services. So it's an important industry to us just as it is to the entire state of Alaska. But the plea from our youth about the importance of climate change, in many respects, I think, uh, was falling on some deaf ears. And there was a back and forth that happened between uh, a leader in the community that was very involved in the oil field industry and the two young women that were bringing forth this resolution for a, a climate change task force, an emergency situation. And at the end of the day, um, the youth ended up with the resolution in the format that they wanted it. And, and it really made me think about what was going on there. What was the, uh, the, the viewpoint from the future Alaskans, that the, the Alaskans are gonna be working and living in, a, in Alaska that's much warmer than it is today? Um, what were they really worried about? And then what are we worried about right now? And, and what, what needs to be done about it?
Climate change is a very serious consequence, particularly in rural Alaska. When it affects where you can store your food, whether it's going to be in an ice house underneath the, the yard, or whether it means that uh, you're no longer going to be able to participate in employment and participate in a dual economy, the consequence of not dealing with this really results in a downward spiral, spiral for the neediest Alaskans. Reductions in sea ice, the lack of snow, they impact marine mammals, fish, seabirds, and, eco and the ecosystem as a whole. And this is an ecosystem that our people rely on for their basic food, their basic food. The evidence exists along our coastlines and our waterways, and it's revealed through the hardships we face in bringing just harvest to our families and our communities in rural Alaska. The Alaska Native people's resilience is, is legendary. We've been here for thousands of years in this state. We can change and adapt. But the things we are losing, the ability to harvest food, the ability to uh, be able to freely and safely travel in the wintertime on the rivers that used to be frozen but aren't anymore, the problems that we have in driving a snow machine, looking for food, and having that snow machine and yourself fall into a hole in the ice because the ice isn't thick enough to support what we do. This, this affects the subsistence economy. And the subsistence economy for rural Alaska is every bit as important as the economy we're talking about and the economy we talk about in Juneau. Um, this, this thawing of permafrost is affecting the way we hunt and fish and harvest. It makes us worried in, in the same way that I was worried listening to the young people at the AFN convention about what their future is really going to be like and how are they going to prosper in the way that we've been able to prosper. Will they have the same opportunities? No, they will not have the same opportunities. We are living in a time where just the fact that we are not dealing with our climate is impacting a significant segment of the economy that is not a dollars and cents based economy. And we're doing this in the poorest part of Alaska. We're having to deal with this in the poorest part of Alaska. So not only do we have policymaking decisions coming from Juneau that strip away essential services, that make those services even harder to achieve, but at the same time, we've got a changing climate. Regardless of why it's changing, it is changing, and we all know that. Walk outside the door today, right? And, and uh, those are the things that I worry about going forward. And what does it mean for the future? Well, in the capitalist economy, the economy where dollars and cents uh, form a basic part of the needs, then it means that we really do need to take a look at all of the revenues that are on the table. It's not just, it's not just the permanent fund, though, because the permanent fund is probably more important for rural Alaskans than it is for anyone else. It, it accounts for a substantial portion of the economy of rural Alaska, and it's helped lift people out of poverty. But the fact remains that we still have plenty of Alaskans in poverty, and we're not dealing, in terms of the fiscal crisis, we're not dealing at the true drivers of that crisis if we don't start thinking long term. And we don't acknowledge that those two young women that wanted a climate change task force and wanted the declaration of emergency were absolutely correct. It's happening, and all you have to do is walk outside the door to see it. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's program includes speakers discussing what they would like to see for Alaska's fiscal future. 
You just heard Vice President of Government Relations for Siri, Greg Razzo. Moderator Thea Agnew-Bemben speaks next. Thank you, Greg. So now, Lucine, I think you have some slides yeah, to share as well. Okay, great. If you want to stand over there, you okay. can, or you can stay where you are. No, I, I'm going to go ahead and stand up because I talk with my hands, and I'm afraid I'm going to hit the mayor. So. <laughs> Most people would appreciate that. No, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and that's a really hard act to follow, so I apologize in advance for disappointing you. But uh, what I thought I would do is take a look back at what's happened over the last couple of years in order to appreciate the backdrop of the conversation that we're having, right? So the states endured a really long recession, in fact, the longest recession in Alaska's history. Not its deepest, but its longest. And basically every single sector of the economy was affected. What you see before you here is the private sector and government, right? And so there are a lot of conversations about this artificial separation between state government and the private sector. The reality is that retailers don't discriminate where dollars come from. And when there are reductions in services or reductions in spending, they hit just about every sector. Breweries don't do as well. Restaurants don't do as well. State government workers lose their jobs or people on the North Slope lose their jobs. And so what you see here is basically state government employment is below 2002 levels. And I didn't stutter, so current government employment is below 2002 levels. And then private sector lost a little less than 10,000 jobs. Altogether, between 2015 and 2018, the Alaska economy lost a little more than 11,000 jobs. And as I've said, those were spread essentially throughout the economy. Now, that's important because that tells us that the economy's ability to absorb reductions is fairly limited. It's fairly, the economy that is, is fairly vulnerable to some of these reductions. Some people will say, well, hang on, the Alaska economy has come out of the recession, which it has. However, the employment gains that we've experienced in 2019, so if you look at all of the employment that we've, employment numbers that we have for 2019, and we have up until November, the economy has grown year over year by about 0.4%. That means that it's averaging about 1,400 jobs this year more than last year. That's a really modest job gain. It's really good, meaning that we're actually doing considerably better than we were in these three years that you're looking at here. However, those job gains are fairly modest. The other thing that's really important to note is that much of the reductions that have occurred have yet to actually be felt by the economy. What I mean by that is we started with a $1.6 billion proposed reduction. That was then changed to about 460 million is the reduction that actually occurred. But only half of that 460 million was actually going towards agency operations, meaning money that actually comes out of the economy. But as we've heard, a hundred million dollar of that 230 or 40 million reduction in agency operation is actually in Medicaid, and we don't even know if that's gonna happen yet or not. So that's all to say, we don't really know how the reductions, however small they ended up being, will interact with some of these modest gains that we've been experiencing. Now, my forecast for 2020 is that 
unless there are very severe reductions, we should again see job gains because oil and gas and construction essentially are leading us out of this recession. And hopefully the bleeding will stop in retail because that's where the drag is right now. It's in state government, retail and local government. And so again, barring some severe reductions, we should see some leveling, but we're not talking about two or 3% growth, we're talking about really modest gains, which means again, whatever decisions end up being made need to take into account the fact that the rest of the country is growing fast. We're at near record low unemployment rates across the country and Alaska is competing for both labor, for resources, for investment and creating an environment of certainty is something that's obviously been lacking. So. I dug into the, the revenue forecast that was produced by the Alaska Department of Labor, uh, the, the Alaska Department of Revenue, sorry. Um, and I, I really like this slide. I don't know how well you can see it because something that I say quite a bit and I'm a broken record is that Alaska, at least when it comes to revenue, is a financial asset dependent state, no longer an oil revenue dependent state. And essentially this tells you the story. Right? And so this is the investment revenue. This is that uh, percent of market value that Senator Imhoff was talking about. And what you see here is that essentially somewhere close to 60% of all the unrestricted general fund revenues will be coming from the permanent fund, about 20 to 30% from oil revenues, and the rest is from all taxes and fees that the state collects. Now, one can approach this and say, look, we're gonna do a myopic accounting exercise and say we have $5 billion in 2020 and $5 billion in 2021. The, the, the budget size, if we take last year's budget, was about $4.3 billion without the dividend and say we're gonna take a residual approach. We're gonna keep the budget leveled and then we're gonna pay $700 million towards the dividend, that's about $1,000 and we're done. Now the problem, that completely misses the fact that there are items within the budget that are growing fast and there is very little that we can do about them. Healthcare, retirement, there are a lot of items. So when we talk about a level budget or a budget that's stagnant, we're essentially talking about reductions in real dollars because there are multiple items that make up that budget that are just growing really fast. The other thing that's really important to note here, and I know I'm a broken record when it comes to this, just because there are financial constraints doesn't mean that the state should stop thinking about economic development. And this is potentially the time to prioritize setting a course that's not thinking about this year or next year, but it's thinking about a longer term horizon. And that's incredibly important because Financial capital is footloose, human capital is footloose. I'm sorry, I'm an economist, I said human capital, that's terrible, I just mean smart people move to other places if they're not happy. Uh, but my point is, quality of life matters, quality of place matters, and the way you do economic development, I'm a regional economist, is really basic. You either sell more of the things that you have, meaning oil, fish, or, 
you actually keep more of the money that you actually make. And I talk about leakage and import substitution in every single presentation. The way you do either one of those two things, meaning either sell more things or keep more of the things that you already have, is by laying a solid foundation that provides goods and services and where quality of life is attractive enough to where firms want to move here, to where smart people want to move here. And unless there is a foundation that's taken a longer term horizon, it becomes really, really hard for firms to commit money. It becomes really hard for people to commit to Alaska and to make investments in any way possible. One last slide and then I'll pass this off to somebody that actually has something of value to say. Uh, and again, this is really important. And I think that this is gonna shape much of the conversation going forward. The state is basically now very much reliant on the permanent fund, right? Historically, the permanent fund had no footprint on the Alaska economy with the exception of the distribution of the dividends. Now, and going forward, the share of the unrestricted general fund that will be coming from the permanent fund will far exceed the money that's coming from oil revenues. So if you average out that period between 2019 and 2029, you basically find that close to two thirds of all unrestricted GF will be coming from investment revenues. That's the permanent fund, that's the, the POMV or the percent, percent of market value. And these are numbers that are taken directly from that most recent fall forecast. And everything else is, uh, like I said, all those other taxes and fees. And so, you know, you can basically look at this, and if you add up all of these categories, and if we take the forecast at face value, it essentially tells us that Alaska revenues as they stand are gonna be between five and six billion dollars for the next 10 years. Again, barring any uncertainty, barring a market crash or oil prices dropping significantly, that's what the state has to play with unless there are new revenues that, that are added, or unless there are some significant changes when it comes to allocation. I'll shut up and I'll pass it off to Larry. Thank you. So to test and see if you're listening, I'm gonna say something nice tonight about Sarah Palin, which is gonna su surprise a lot of you. But first, I guess, you know, I wanna say, Alaskans have been guilty for years, for decades, actually, of what I refer to as supercalifragilistic over-optimistic. Something was gonna come and save our ass so that we didn't have to tax ourselves, so we could have a free dividend. Well, yeah, it doesn't work for Mary Poppins and isn't gonna work for us. You know, we have said for years here, we don't give a damn how they do it outside. We're gonna do it different here. We're bigger, we're tougher, the mountains are taller, the water's colder, winters used to be colder, the men are weird, and, <laughs> and I say that as a oh, old guy in Alaska. You know, we stuck our heads in the permafrost, we thought the rules of math don't apply in Alaska, but they apply the same here as anywhere else. Doesn't matter how different we are, how hardy we are, how stronger we are, it's just, math, and we've been ignoring it. We teach it to our students, but we've been ignoring it ourselves, hoping something 
would come along and, and save us. So, and this is where I say something nice about Palin. So back in 2010, when she was a vice presidential candidate, that's after she ended her temporary stint as governor, uh, and she was in that voice that she stole from Tina Fey, and <laughs> where she said, well, you know, Obama and that hopey changey stuff, how that's working out. If she had paid attention when she was governor, if she had paid attention when she was mayor, if she had paid attention when she was a sportscaster, uh, she would have realized we've been banking on hopey, changey stuff here for decades. We've been living in a, a dream world, a fiscal dream world, that somehow something else would pay for public services. We just thought the math didn't count here. And that's it, I have nothing more nice to say about her. Uh, <laughs> That's, that's my one lifetime. So, but it is true. We're sort of this hope be changey. We've got to change. It isn't going to work. Everyone's told us that tonight. We have to look at spending. We have to look at revenues. We have to look at paying our, our own way. Uh, never been a state sales tax. Was a state income tax abolished after 1979. We have the lowest motor fuel tax in the country. Hasn't changed in 50 years. The Department of Transportation this winter closed a winter snowplow station on the Seward Highway. Said, well, we don't have enough money from motor fuel taxes anymore to keep it open. Well, that's that math thing. Let's see, we haven't raised taxes in 50 years. People are buying less fuel because cars are more efficient. So we don't have enough to plow the highway at night in the winter. And we're surprised. We're shocked. We're blaming someone else instead of blaming ourselves. Uh, you know, I know that dividend's important. I know it's popular. I wasn't the greatest student in Sunday school, but man, it wasn't on the tablet Moses brought down from the mountain. <laughs> Unless there was a Matsu edition I missed. <laughs> so this shows Musin and I did not conspire, and there was no collusion, even though we're making the same point. Uh, in last year, the permanent fund earned 10 times as much money as it got off oil royalties. We are an investment state. We've been an investment state for years. We are never going to get back to the point where oil and gas tax and royalty exceed investment income. And if you believe that oil and gas is going to exceed permanent fund earnings, if you believe oil and gas is going to save us, I have a gas line project I'll sell you. So I think. My vision, and I'm not, I've never been a big vision guy. Um, I've been wearing glasses since I was four years old. But I think we have the revenue out there. We have the opportunities for additional revenue um, as long as Senator Von Imhoff said, we don't overdraw from the permanent fund. We don't promise an unaffordable dividend. We look at a reasonable broad-based tax, responsible oil taxes, it can work. We've just got to change instead of hoping. Uh, could you talk more about human capital in the form of population increase of new graduates to Alaska? Is there concern about changing demographics? And not every panelist has to answer every question. So just if would any, anyone want to take a stab at this one, talking about human capital? Christine's <laughs> already used the words. I, I really apologize. <laughs> you can have a drink. I was going to say on me, but I may lose my job. So not on me. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, Alaska demographics are shifting really, really fast. Uh, I, I just did an analysis of the labor force, and 
In 2000, the share of the population over the age of 65 was 7%. It's at about 16.5% right now. And so, and labor force participation rate in general has declined quite significantly from about 73% to about 65%. And so the demographics are shifting. Uh, there is very good evidence that uh, I don't want to call them kids, but I, I suppose high school students who end up getting educated in Alaska are considerably more likely to stay in Alaska, start businesses here or be employed here and buy homes and spend money here. Uh, the likelihood of returning to Alaska if you go study out outside of the state is considerably lower, right? And so that means that, again, thinking about investments or thinking about economic development, you don't have to think about the university, but think about economic development and think about the very first thing that I heard when I came to Alaska about eight years ago now, and Scott had taken me to a luncheon, was the number of businesses that got up and said that there are significant labor shortages, and they were complaining about the fact that there aren't enough engineers, there aren't enough well-trained economists, there aren't enough accountants, and the only way that you do that in order to, to encourage them to come invest in the state and stay in the state is to supply that labor force. And so, again, I think that it's easy to think about these issues as siloed, right? And so the university is here, economic development is here, oil development is here. The reality is that Again, people are footloose. Alaska is aging. It's aging really fast. The share of the population that's over 65 is still small, but it's increasing really, really fast. And that means that the share of the population that's in the labor force that's potentially going to pay an income tax when an income tax does does pass is getting smaller, and there should be real thought into how do you grow that segment, how do you make quality of life attractive enough to where people want to come here, want to stay here, and the ones that you know have that decision to make between going to school outside of the state or staying here have an actual vision or reason to stay here. I just finished teaching regional economics, and almost every class people would come up to me afterwards and say, should I stay? Should I go? I'm about to finish. Is the economy really bad? I read something that you said, and so I'm being blamed now for them moving out. And so, but anyway. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. Today's program was a discussion about what we want Alaska's fiscal future to be. Speakers were State Senator Natasha Von Imhoff, Anchorage Mayor Ethan Berkowitz, Series Greg Razzo, and UAA's Musin Gutabi and Larry Persily. To watch video of the entire program or to see presenter slides, you can head to the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. This event was presented by Alaska Common Ground and was recorded at 49th State Brewing Company on December 10th. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.